Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Every week on this podcast, we delve into a topic of international significance. Keith, we choose a topic that of something that is going on in the world of international relations type of style, and we break it down into really simple, easy to understand, I guess, terms in a way. We just, yeah, yeah, yeah. that way. And look, there's no better man to do this than Dr. Keith Souter, three PhDs on the subject matter, if you don't mind. He's been a media commentator for decades on on all sorts of issues from around the globe. Today, we're going to talk about the world after coronavirus. Now, that might seem <laughs> quite out of eyeshot for most people. It wouldn't even be in our realm of consideration at this particular point with no vaccine as well. But, Keith, it will exist? Well, we hope so. Although it's interesting, the current speculation is that we may never get a vaccination and it may end up like AIDS. In other words, AIDS continues to hover around. So what we've had to do is to devise strategies to cope with it. Now, the article I've been reading is by an Israeli historian called Yuval Noah Harari. So this is a guy, and he's written for the Financial Times in England, which is my favourite newspaper. And so um, just to say something, Harari teaches at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He began his career with a PhD from Oxford looking at medieval warfare, but he's really now branched out into a a brief history of humankind, Look at, and he does what's called big history. Mm. So professional historians don't do big history. They get to know more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. So it's very courageous for a professional historian to do big history. In fact, Australia has one of the leading centres of big history at Macquarie University, which receives Bill Gates' money for this big history style. So um, Harari, based in um, Jerusalem, was obviously invited by the Financial Times to look at some of the big picture issues of the coronavirus. And he says that this is perhaps the biggest crisis of our generation. So who would ever have predicted in January that we'd be talking about the biggest crisis of our generation? Just shows how quickly these uh, crises can come along. His argument in this article, so it's the the world after coronavirus, uh, published in the Financial Times, uh, March 20 of this year, he argues that many short-term emergency measures will become a fixture of life. So that's the nature of, of emergencies. In other words, you get things done of a, an emergent nature and they just sort of linger. Uh, you get people who can find a variety of reasons why we need to continue with the emergency measures. If you think back at how much flying has changed since 9-11 in 2001 with all the elaborate security measures that we now have, the size of the terrorist problem is actually now quite small, but all of those people have got careers based on people being scared about the risk of terrorism. And so you've got a terrorist industrial complex uh, that has been created and which will not... Uh, allow itself to be wound up and for its members to become unemployed. He now is talking about the big changes that are coming as a result of these emergency actions. And so he talks about two. One is surveillance and the extent of governments being able to monitor people, particularly with the improvements in technology. 
And then secondly, the whole question of national isolation or global solidarity. So they're the two big long-term issues that he's talking about. So if you look about um, the whole issue of surveillance is that if you think back, the KGB and the old Soviet Union 50 years ago could not follow 240 million Soviet citizens 24 hours a day. And even if they did, they wouldn't be able to process all the data that they would have gathered. That's all now changed because of artificial intelligence, information technology, etc. You can watch people 24 hours a day. In a sense, we are being watched at the moment because we both have mobile phones. So although we're, we're behaving ourselves and we've turned them off, the National Security Agency can still turn them on without our knowing and listen to what we're talking about. So this is how we're now living in this surveillance society. And so one of the things that he's warning us about is this development of a surveillance society where the momentum will just build up so you get more and more intrusive measures from technology. And let's um, use China as an example for this, but China's been monitoring, they're the most monitored race in the world. They've got the most cameras on everywhere monitoring their population um, as a way of controlling, I would imagine, not that I'd ever admit that, but... What you're saying, I guess, is that we're beca- we'll become at ease with being monitored through situations like the coronavirus and therefore it just becomes normal place. That's right. There's a trade-off. On the one hand, do you want to be secure and protected from the virus or do you want your civil liberties? And what about this app, by the way, Keith, that the government got everyone <laughs> exactly. to download? Did well, you ever download it? And a number of Uyghur asylum seekers in this country, in Australia, will not use that app because they do have exactly, as you're talking about, recollections of the Chinese. And then what the ramifications were with those particular people yeah. being rounded up and jailed. Exactly. So you've got a million people who have been arrested, we think, with amongst the Uyghurs, the mm. Muslims in Western China. So that is one of the things that he's looking at. And he's saying, well, look, remember, this is a big history, guys. So he's the one who gets us to think outside the square. So now he says that... The government now wants to know the temperature of your finger and the blood pressure under your skin. And so they collect this biometric data. What they could then do, if it's a regime like North Korea, is that they can then use that monitoring just to see how you respond to pictures of our great leader. So they'll be able to tell whether you feel anxious if you see uh, Mr Kim appearing. Oh, God, don't. Those poor people have gone through enough, (laughs) Keith. (laughs) Well, he's getting us to get outside of our comfort zone Mm. and to think through the long-term implications, particularly with all the improvements in surveillance technology. And remember, people now don't know exactly when we're being surveilled. So what you're then doing is that you're training people to operate under the assumption that you are being surveilled, that you are being checked on. Even if you're not, you restrain how you behave. I noticed this a lot in the old days of the Cold War when I travelled extensively behind the Iron Curtain. And you'd be talking to East Europeans and they'd be restrained in some of their comments in some locations precisely because they thought there might be microphones up in the, I don't know, in the, in the electric bulbs or in the, in the walls somewhere. It's interesting. I was reminiscing with somebody who also used to go behind the Iron Curtain a great deal during the old Cold War days. 
And this guy was actually smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe. I wasn't quite that exotic. But we were just comparing notes. On one occasion, I had to get a Canadian woman out of Eastern Europe. Uh, So she was my wife for the night. So we got her out on the train to West Germany and then she went up to NATO headquarters in Brussels. And we were just comparing notes. And the pair of us realised that you could do things in those days which you wouldn't be able to do today, you know, smuggling somebody out or smuggling Bibles in. You know, if you get blocked at one point, there's always another checkpoint and, they wouldn't, and they're always different. They were not connected electronically. They might have a telephone and that'll be the limit of it. The guards were usually bored, so they weren't really paying too much attention. But compare that to entering the United States today and the elaborate security precautions that now exist as a result of 9-11. So when this guy speculates about, he says here, this is in the article, this is um, Yuval Harare, imagine North Korea in 2030 when every citizen has to wear a biometric bracelet 24 hours a day. If you listen to a speech by the great leader and the bracelet picks up the telltale signs of anger, you are done for. This is really uh, extreme stuff we're talking about. It is extreme, but then that's the value of this type of speculation, that we spend so much time being obsessed. Just look at today's media coverage, whatever the story is. It's always very narrow. Mm. We live in an era of 24-7 media, so it's instant coverage. And I work in the mainstream media. I don't touch any of the social media, which is a completely different world full of anti-vaxxers and, and all sorts of things. So I don't even go there. That's bad my blood pressure. But even, <laughs> but even looking at, at today's challenges and the issues that are involved with 24-7 media coverage, we get so blinded by the immediate that we're not paying attention to the long-term issues. That's why I found this article by this historian so useful. listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking today about the world after coronavirus. And, uh, well, by the sounds of things, Keith, it's it's not going to be for quite a while. The, the, there's going to be an aftermath. Well, not an aftermath of it, but the impact of this will last for a very, very long time. In one way or another. So his argument is, look, these emergency measures come into place and they often don't get removed, even if the initial problem has gone. He's got a lovely piece in this article. My home country of Israel declared a state of emergency during its 1948 War of Independence, which justified a range of temporary measures from press censorship and land confiscation to special regulations for making puddings. I kid you not, he says. The War of Independence has long been won, but Israel never declared the emergency over and has failed to abolish many of the temporary measures of 1948. The emergency pudding decree was eventually abolished in the year 2011. <laughs> what? It's incredible. I know. So, so what he is, what, one of the issues he's raising is, look, the problem will be that we're going to be given this choice between privacy and health and people are going to opt for health and they will find their civil liberties gradually being eroded as a result of these measures. So we will end up then with people uh, being bullied into accepting some sorts of of dictatorships. One of my biggest arguments about Australian society is we're we're such a wealthy, privileged society that <clears throat> that how much are we are we willing to put up with? Because I mean we've even already at this stage put up with a lot of 
we've played along with isolation and all the rules that went along with it and the restrictions that went along with it to keep coronavirus at bay. But mm. at some point, which is like now, we've just gone, no, 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 now compliance is over. We're getting back to real life. We're getting Absolutely. back to normal life. So we've had yeah. enough. So in that vein, why... Would we be okay with, is it just by stealth that they end up taking it? Exactly, and because the emergency never seems to go away. Look at everything that has changed since 9-11. So if you're on a plane in Sydney uh, waiting to take off, the pilot, even though you're in Australian land, the pilot will come on because the plane's heading off to the United States and say you're not allowed to congregate around toilets. This is an instruction from American Department of Homeland Security which applies to Australian planes, even when they're sitting on the tarmac at Sydney waiting to take off to fly to the United States. So what he is warning about is that we just need to be very careful that uh, we we just are keep monitoring what is happening in terms of all of this surveillance technology. And he, he makes the comment there that you need to have people who trust science, who trust public authorities and who trusts the media. And over the past few years, irresponsible politicians have deliberately undermined trust in science, in public authorities, and in the media. So he's saying that from one point of view, this is going to be a pretty difficult long-term problem that we're going to have. So that's one issue that he's simply saying. He's saying, be careful. Temporary measures eventually become permanent, and they will therefore change our way of life they will be felt most acutely in China or North Korea, but eventually could end up going around the rest of the world. The other issue that he addresses is that we need to confront uh, the choice between nationalist isolation and global solidarity. So his argument is that we really ought to be working together in far more international cooperation. It's interesting, I was talking recently to... Dr. Michelle Sanson, I examined her PhD. She did a very good PhD on the creation of the international order and looking particularly at the impact of World War II and how governments decided, look, we can't go on having wars like this. We've got to come up with new ideas, new forms of international cooperation, etc. And we were just reminiscing really about what a different world we're now living in, that the politicians are not rushing to come together to cooperate, that the world that she described for 1945 is really not being replicated at the moment. You can't get the countries to come together. He's got a, a very interesting statistic about the how long it took even for the, the leaders of the G7. So there's a group of the seven most powerful countries in the world, that's the United States, uh, UK, etc. It took them weeks to organise a video conference and then no plan arose out of that video conference anyway. <laughs> Very different from where we were in 1945 with the conference, well, 44 and 45, in readiness for the end of the war in the middle of 1945. It's a very different sort of era. He also makes the comment that in previous global crises like 2008 financial crisis and the 2014 Ebola epidemic, the United States assumed the role of global leader but the current US administration has abdicated the job of leader. And, of course, it's it's interesting. If you look at, at President Trump, he actually got rid of the public health unit established by President Obama to deal with the 2014 Ebola 
crisis. Trump abolished that because it was an Obama unit within the White House. He abolished it. Mm-hmm. Like he did everything that Obama yeah. had put his stamp on. So Yuval Noah Harare is saying as a second issue is that we need to find a way of rediscovering that sense of international cooperation. Mm. If you don't cooperate together, you will perish separately. Remember, the virus itself moves effortlessly from one country to another. It's not worried about boundaries. And if you look at planet Earth from outer space, you can't see boundaries on the planet. So boundaries are very much a human-made creation, and that's what's uh, hindering the fight against the coronavirus. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.